The man arrested on suspicion of leaking highly sensitive and classified documents on social media makes his first appearance in U.S. federal court. News of the leaked documents came to light last week. They include maps of Ukrainian military positions and detailed assessments. Ukrainians prepare to celebrate their second Easter holiday amid the threat of shelling and sirens. It was a very bad attack in Odessa on Easter last year. So the government is reminding that risks uh, is, are high, remain high. And later in the program, how Russia's war in Ukraine is creating a growing mental health crisis. Today is Friday, April 14th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. The American man suspected of leaking classified intelligence documents, including secrets about the war in Ukraine, made his first court appearance before a federal judge in Boston on Friday, facing charges he unlawfully removed and retained classified materials. Boston's top national security prosecutor requested that he be detained pending trial. The 21-year-old National Guardsman working on a military base in Massachusetts was arrested by the FBI at his home on Thursday. VOA's Laurel Bowman has more. U.S. authorities arrested 21-year-old Jack Teixeira at a home in Dayton, Massachusetts in connection with the leaking of a trove of classified intelligence and military documents. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that agents with the Federal Bureau of Investigation arrested the suspect on Thursday. Today, the Justice Department arrested Jack Douglas Teixeira in connection with an investigation into alleged unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. The Washington Post newspaper and other outlets reported late Wednesday that the man behind the leak shared the documents on the social media site Discord. News of the leaked documents came to light last week. They include maps of Ukrainian military positions and detailed assessments by Washington of Ukraine and of U.S. allies' support for Ukraine. At the Pentagon Thursday, officials addressed their security measures. Brigadier General Pat Ryder is Pentagon Press Secretary. I would say, though, that it is, it is important to understand uh, that we do have stringent guidelines in place for safeguarding classified and sensitive information. This was a deliberate criminal act, a violation of those guidelines. U.S. President Joe Biden, who is in Ireland, pointed to the ongoing investigation by the Justice Department and downplayed the leak. Well, I, I'm, I'm not concerned about the leakages, and I'm concerned that it happened. But there's nothing contemporaneous that I'm aware of that is of great consequence. The Justice Department is leading the criminal investigation into the leak. Laurel Bowman, VOA News, Washington. U.S. officials are still assessing the damage done by the leaks. Anyone convicted of willfully transmitting national defense information can face up to 10 years in prison. The entire Russian Pacific fleet has been put on high alert for snap drills that will involve practice missile launches. Associated Press correspondent Charles de Ledesma reports. 
The massive show of force comes amid the tensions with the West over the fighting in Ukraine. Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu says the goal of the war games is to test Russian military's capability to mount a response to aggression. Shoigu says the scenario envisages a response to an adversary's attempt to make a landing on Sakhalin Island and the southern Kuril Islands. Japan asserts territorial rights to these islands, which it calls the Northern Territories. The Soviet Union took them in in the final days of World War II, and the dispute has kept the countries from signing a peace treaty formally, ending their hostilities. I'm Charles Diladesma. China won't be selling weapons to either side for the war in Ukraine. The country's foreign minister said Friday, responding to Western concerns that Beijing could provide military assistance to Russia. More from VOA's Steve Miller. Qing Gong is the highest-level Chinese official to make such an explicit statement about arms sales to Russia, adding that China would also regulate the export of items with dual civilian and military use. The minister also reiterated China's willingness to help find a peaceful resolution to the conflict. China maintains that it is neutral in the conflict while backing Russia politically and economically at a time when Western nations have imposed punishing sanctions. Steve Miller, VOA News. Highly accurate and maneuverable U.S. howitzers have been helping the armed forces of Ukraine fight off Russians' aggression since July 2022. These days, the weapons are used mostly in the Bakhmut district in the Donetsk region. Anna Kostuchenko has the story. 323. A soldier announces coordinates of the next target. On the battlefield, a U.S. M777 howitzer. Such battles can last for hours, explains the senior officer of the battery. The enemy can fire 40 to 50 missiles back at us. We experienced it once. We were shelled for three hours. And in three hours, trust me, even a Soviet system can hit the target. In 2014, this fighter, who goes by the call sign musician, participated in the joint forces operations against Russian-backed separatists in the Donbas region of Ukraine. After two years there, he returned to civilian life, his job as a sales agent in Ternopil and his band. After a few years, Russia started its full-scale offensive against Ukraine, and he had to live his peaceful life again. On February 26, 2022, he volunteered for the front lines in the Donetsk region. Here he learned how to use the M777 howitzer. You need less than a minute to make a shot. On the front lines, the M777 howitzers significantly strengthened the position of Ukrainian defenders, says Colonel Sergei Chervati, spokesman for Ukraine's Eastern Group of Forces. The more accurate and powerful your shots at the enemy are, the more chances you have to win the battle and the war. Ukrainian fighters also learned how to use the American M119 light howitzer. A fighter who goes by the call sign Perlina commands his artillery battery brigade. He is a professional artilleryman from the Kharkiv region and has studied at the Hetman Petrosohaidachny National Ground Forces Academy. 
Perlina has been fighting since 2014. Since the start of the Russia's invasion, he has helped liberate the Kyiv and Kharkiv regions and now fights in the Bakhmut district. Since 2014, we gained some skills in the military. Our country can show the Russian Federation its strength. Perlina says his fighters are in constant combat readiness to cover the back of Ukrainian infantry and shoot at the enemy. And there is nothing better for that than M119 and M777 howitzers. Anna Kostyuchenko, VOA News, Donetsk region, Ukraine. Ukrainians are preparing to celebrate their second Easter under attack and at war. I spoke with Anna Chernikova to see how people are coping in year two. How are people feeling? Is it something they're sort of adapting to and just planning for the holiday? Uh, well, second Easter, and I can definitely tell you that it's really something to compare with previous year, big time, because previous year Easter was also happening in April, and April was a period when Kyiv region was just liberated. And basically, the chaos was really, you know, much, much higher than it is now. People are getting ready for Easter in terms of, you know, in Ukraine, there is this rich Easter family tradition. So people are cooking this special Easter bread. People are um, getting ready to spend this time with their family. Of course, the sadness of full-scale war uh, is in the air and some people will not be able to properly celebrate Easter. Also, uh, Ukrainian soldiers will not be able to see their families. Some people will, will not be able to see their families because they are they were either killed or they are at the occupied territories. Some people lost their homes. So it's really, really very, very special and at the same time very different for many families uh, across the country. If we compare with last year, this year Easter feels more obvious within the society because last year it was something like, you know, this additional holiday that was bringing people temporarily back to life. But I should say that the shock of this full-scale invasion was still too deep and uh, a lot of people were not really feeling this holiday. This year is different and uh, even in terms of the products that you can get, now there is no problem with any products. Back in April last year, there were a lot of difficulties in getting certain things. So it is still a wartime Easter. But uh, it is much more holiday vibe than it was last year. Even though people are adjusting and adapting to this new normal, there are still concerns of safety and moving about, not knowing what might happen on the holiday? Absolutely. The Ukrainian government is reminding people that the risk of missile attack is very high, especially during this Easter, Easter period, uh, Easter weekend. And uh, if come back to the last year, Easter weekend was... Uh, basically for Ukrainians under missile attacks. It was a very bad attack in Odessa on Easter last year. So the government is reminding that risks uh, is, are high, remain high. And people, of course, also understand this because in Ukraine, people have this belief that Russian forces and Russian leaders, they have this love for the dates and Easter is something that they might use for, uh, for an attack. But again, uh, we will see how it will go this year. Well, hopefully it will be better than last year and people will be able to at least, you know, spend time with their loved ones and, and family members. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. 
You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. The impacts of daily shellings, cities in ruins, deaths and displacement, a serious mental health crisis is emerging in Ukraine. The World Health Organization expects close to 10 million people may be suffering from mental health issues like depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress. I discussed this with Zahir Salul, co-founder and president of MedGlobal, on what's being done to address this growing reality. Living in this sort of trauma has to be just an incredibly difficult thing to deal with and overcome. Tell us your assessment of the growing mental health crisis in Ukraine. Like in any uh, other war zone, uh, people are affected by the violence that they witness, the loss of family members, the bombing that happens in their neighborhood and cities, the destruction, the death and the injuries among their relatives and friends, what they see on the news, the displacement which happens in war zones, including Ukraine. More than 7 million people have been displaced internally and we have about 6 million refugees. And the uncertainty of whether I'm going to be living tomorrow or my family members or would my city will be occupied or bombed the daily sirens, I mean, I've been in Ukraine multiple times and every day you have multiple sirens where people rush to the shelters and they are focused on their cell phones to see the news. All of these things will cause mental health damage in the Ukrainian population and of course the population in any other war zones like Syria and Yemen and other places that my organization have been there. And that will lead to anxiety, will lead to depression, will lead to post-traumatic stress disorders and other acute and chronic psychiatric illnesses unless it's identified early and, and, and managed. And how can that be the case if the situation, the trauma that's being inflicted on people emotionally is ongoing due to the war continuing and no way out of it unless, of course, the refugees, which I would imagine also creates mental health and emotional issues as well. Definitely. That's a huge challenge, especially in a big country where the war will, there's no end in sight and the bombing is happening in many cities and it doesn't look like you have a solution for the issue. What is needed is basically an orchestrated effort by the local authority, the Ministry of Health, international NGOs, the UN and the funders to direct more resources to identifying this problem and providing training to healthcare providers, whether they are nurses or frontline doctors. That way they provide what's called initial psychiatric first aid for the victims of violence to make sure that they feel that they are safe and they're taking care of their needs and that someone is listening to them and also providing a little bit more sophisticated training and resources for psychiatric recovery skills to also address the issue among healthcare workers who are themselves traumatized. There is a stigmata in Ukraine and many other countries about mental health issues. So people do not seek to see psychiatrists or go to psychiatric hospital if they are depressed or if they have PTSD. So you have to identify these symptoms and signs early and you have to train physicians and nurses on a large scale and you have to provide organizational resources for hospitals to provide resiliency training to their workers, to their doctors, to their nurses, because they are human like anyone else and they suffer from trauma related to the violence and what they witness on a daily basis. I understand MedGlobal is actually leading some mental health initiatives to try to take this on. This is a large-scale problem. As you mentioned, one-fifth of the population, about 10 million people will be affected. So you cannot do everything for everyone. We are focusing actually on the impact of the crisis on healthcare workers. Some of them are displaced, displaced doctors we found in cities like Lviv and 
and Kiev are more traumatized than doctors and nurses who are from the indigenous communities. So displacement by itself is a trauma. They are seeing victims of war every day, and this will leave a scar in their emotional status. So we are directing resources to identify this issue within the nurses and the doctors of the hospitals, and also how to identify it in your colleagues and how to build resiliency within the system. So that way, doctors continue to work and nurses continue to provide care without them being affected and at one point burn out and leave the job. Right, because it's critical that they need them more than ever. But if they're traumatized too and they're not getting any support, then that's just compounding an already very, very difficult situation. Exactly. And we've seen it actually in the U.S. during the COVID pandemic because of the relentless admission of patients who are very sick, many of them dying, especially early in the crisis. Doctors and nurses have been affected or affected and traumatized. Many of them left job. Many of them developed depression and anxiety. And this is happening in the U.S. where we have a lot of resources. So imagine a country in war where you have very limited resources in terms of mental health. So you need to have more focus on what you do. And that's what we're trying to address. We had an initial program and we're trying to expand it with the partnership with the Ministry of Health to other frontline hospitals and cities. Have you had a chance to speak to any of these healthcare workers in Ukraine personally to hear their stories and how they're coping or not coping? Uh, Right before the large-scale bombing, I spoke with many doctors and nurses. It reminded me of what I've witnessed in my homeland in Syria, where doctors and nurses have been traumatized, but at the same time, they don't admit it. They don't recognize that they have been traumatized. Doctors want to feel safe. Nurses want to feel safe, and they want someone to address their mental health issues, but that requires intentional effort from hospitals, from Ministry of Health, from NGOs. You know, many people speak about mental health in the war, and I think the more that we dig and dissect the issue and identify different levels of mental health trauma and uh, how is it affecting different population differently, more vulnerable population are affected more, so the children will be affected with higher percentage, the elderly will be affected by higher percentage. In some studies in out of Syria, 60-70% of the elderly refugees have some type of mental health trauma. So it depends on the population and uh, how vulnerable they are. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this important issue. This is going to take a lot of work, I'm sure. Thank you, Lori. Thank you for addressing this issue. School can be awkward for children of any age, let alone living in a war zone with daily air raid sirens, shelling, and classmates suffering from extreme stress. But it's now the reality for Ukrainian school children. International op-ed editor for The Washington Post, Kristen Carl, spoke with my colleague Steve Karish about the state of Ukrainian schools and the challenge of educating those who will rebuild a country. You know, I got to say, when I first started reading it, I was thinking to myself, well, of course the schools are destroyed. The whole country is in war. What's what's the big surprise here? Uh, What did you find? Well, I think the big surprise for me was just the sheer determination of people to keep going. Uh, You know, again and again and again, I saw teachers and school kids defying really, really formidable circumstances uh, to keep schools running. It's important to remember that all this comes after Ukraine, like all the rest of us, spent two years of the pandemic, you know, with all the kids learning from home. And that was a very traumatic experience. And Ukraine was just coming out of it when the Russians launched their invasion in February of last year. So... It's kind of like the double whammy, you know. Um, And the other thing I I hadn't really fully appreciated was not only that so many schools are destroyed and have lost equipment because of the invasion, 
but the sheer numbers of people who have left the country or who have been displaced within the country is also a gigantic factor. And of course, Ukraine is at war. We see in the news all the time. We listen on this program all the time. There are air raid sirens probably every night during the day as well. How does that affect schools? That has a tremendous impact on the schools. Uh, These alerts go off constantly. Uh, Everybody, including kids, has an app on their phone that tells them basically how seriously they should take each alert. Because every time a you know, a military plane takes off in Belarus or in Russia, there's often an alert. And this is just massively disruptive. And that once somebody told me that there have been several thousand alerts since the invasion last year. And if you have to, you know, interrupt your class every time there's an alert, that's tremendously disruptive. And a lot of teachers told me that's one of the main obstacles they're facing right now. So the children that are in Ukrainian schools now are going to be the young adults who rebuild the country when the war is over. Are the teachers focusing their lessons on practical things for rebuilding in that way? I don't know if they're consciously focusing on those things, but um, the school reforms that were introduced in Ukraine just before this phase of the war got underway, just before the Russian invasion last year, have really targeted the idea of making school more relevant to everyday life. That's a reform that already started before the invasion. And I heard a lot of uh, reformers saying, we really need to continue this and to emphasize this more than ever. You know, it can't be about rote learning or just book learning. The education has to become much more relevant to everyday life and to the tasks that these kids will face as they try to rebuild their country. Again, it's a challenge schools face all over the world, but probably more acute in a war zone like Ukraine, and that's the mental health of students and teachers. How is that being addressed? Yeah, that was really moving to me. Um, You know, Ukrainians will tell you themselves that they're not always very good about discussing their problems. It's a a culture that is really more about stoic self-containment. Um, And they will tell you this themselves. And so it was all the more impressive to see Ukrainian teachers talking a lot about the psychological stress of the situation that both they and their students face. Um, There was a lot of acknowledgement of this Um, again and again and again without my asking. Teachers would say, yeah, you know, we had a psychologist come by and advise us on how to set up this shelter so that it wouldn't seem as, you know, an air raid shelter. To, to ensure that it wouldn't be depressing or demoralizing for the students. And I was really struck by that. They're very, very aware of how, how stressed out everyone in the system is, and they're doing what they can to, to, to bolster people's psychological needs. There's, there's an awareness there that I think kind of surprised me. Christian Carl is the international op-ed editor for The Washington Post. His recent article is about schools in Ukraine. Mr. Carl, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world. 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Lori London.
This is the voice of America. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.